Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today for our weekly news analysis show is my co-host, attorney and Republican strategist Jay Carson. We start this week with some important developments in healthcare policy. Now, late last week, President Trump announced that his administration would be cutting off cost-sharing subsidies to insurers, which reimbursed them for lowering deductibles and co-pays for people from 100 to 250% of the poverty level who are enrolled in the Obamacare markets. Now, the subsidies are required by the Affordable Care Act, but the money for them was never actually appropriated, which led to still pending lawsuits by congressional Republicans. Now, in the interim, the Obama administration and until now, the Trump administration have kept making these payments out of concern for uh, the disruption to the exchanges if those payments stopped. And for a while earlier this week, it looked like there might be a legislative fix to this when Senate Health Committee Chair Lamar Alexander and ranking Democratic member Patty Murray said they'd come to an agreement on a plan to fund the subsidies for two years as well as to give states more flexibility by making it easier for them to get waivers to certain Obamacare provisions. And the measure they'd come up with would also restore millions of dollars in funding for exchange sign-up efforts, which the Trump administration recently cut. And this proposed legislation has a lot of support, really, doctors, hospitals, insurers, and including groups like the National Governors Association and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And initially, it seemed like President Trump was one of the supporters, but Later in the week, he backed away from it, characterizing the plan as a bailout for insurers. So that's kind of where we are now on this. So, so Jay, I guess I'm wondering uh, a couple things. Uh, Will this become law, do you think, in some form? And maybe even more importantly, should it? Well, um, gosh, you know, I think the conservative position and first my my first, you know, thought when when the. uh, the Alexander Murray proposal, as it's, as it's being called, um, was floated was, uh, wow, uh, this really worked. Donald Trump is, uh, I don't want to use the word genius, but, but, but this, this worked now this, you know, this is the constitution working the way it, it ought to, uh, the president saying, look, uh, these, these, uh, payments were put in place without appropriate legislative authority. Uh, the court has uh, thus far ruled that it is unconstitutional. I think it's unconstitutional. I'm going to stop it and put it back onto Congress to do what it's supposed to do, uh, and which Congress uh, picked up the ball and seemed to be moving in the right place, the right direction. And and I would have then expected Donald Trump to say something like, see, uh, it works. This is the way the Constitution is supposed to work, separation of powers. Um, but he didn't. Um, so... Um, now I, I guess then the bigger question is, 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 does it really matter? Um, uh, and I think my sense of that is, is probably not, um, because I, I think there, there is going to be enough momentum, um, uh, to get something done legislatively. Uh, and, and there's going to be some back and forths and, uh, um, uh, you know, everyone's going to have to take something that they don't like, uh, Republicans are going to have to swallow what, what you know, are essentially payoffs, payouts, uh, to insurers. Um, uh, and, uh, but what they, they get back from that is maybe the, uh, uh, some of this more flexibility that the Trump was doing by executive order written in the statute. Uh, what they also get is the, uh, stability that, uh, these, these exchanges aren't going to collapse, uh, in the near term. Um, and that kind of gets them off the hook from a, Obamacare being held responsible for an Obamacare death spiral. So, you know, all, all in all, I mean, I, I'd say kudos to, to Congress for, for picking this up and, and, and this is maybe where the, the things sort of started, um, as opposed to trying to do the bigger repeal and replace. Well, I think there, you know, it's an, it, it's an example of on some issues when there really is broad, uh, support for getting something done. Like I said, you know, it's not the uh, U S chamber of commerce is no, you know, uh, pinko liberal lefty group. Right. And, and that they still hold some sway with, uh, with a lot of Republicans in Congress. And when you have a situation where, you know, the failure to act could result in, you know, some pretty serious consequences, it's nice to think that Congress actually can do something. It's disappointing to me that the president didn't do the sort of thing that you would have hoped he would have done and I would have hoped he would have done. But but I also get the sense that 
President Trump kind of wants to be on both sides of this issue. So no matter what happens, he can claim victory, essentially, because to yeah, him, that I, seems I think he wants to be able to argue uh, maybe for for a little bit more. Although, uh, again, to me, the the idea that uh, well, instead of arguing against the uh, insurance subsidy uh, uh, payments, uh, what he ought to do is is just insist that there be a a higher Republican price for that, or a higher Democrat price, depending on which way you look. Meaning, meaning, yes, I'm you know I, I'd be okay getting behind these these subsidies now that they're done in a uh, constitutional appropriately appropriate manner uh, through Congress. Um, but I also want to see this other flexibility in the bill. I want to see uh, the ability to create um, um, uh, high, high risk pools uh, across state lines, those, those sort of things. Um, and maybe that's what he's setting up for. But, but to me, I mean, I, I almost think a little bit that Trump is sort of out of this conversation at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. You know, and, and I think, uh, also, it, it's interesting to see how, well, before, before I get to so what the states are doing, the, the states are doing kind of an interesting thing to adjust to this landscape. But, but I also think that, that President, President Trump, you know, I think he's right in the sense, and this is something I wanted to mention earlier on, I think he's right that it's unconstitutional. I don't know that he actually came up with that all on his own, but <laughs> well, I mean, no, I mean, the, 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 yeah, the, but you know, you and I have talked about that and we both, I think agree that those payments, that's a, that's a sketchy sort of thing. And, and really the appropriate thing is for Congress to act. But, but more than that, you know, this is like you said, how the process is supposed to work that each side takes a little bit of something that it, that it doesn't necessarily uh, want to take on here. Uh, you know, but I should also point out that, you know, you called the, you characterize this as payouts or, or uh, bailouts or something that the president did at least to insurance companies. Now, just to be clear, uh, right. The, under Obamacare, the, the insurers were told, you will have to subsidize these people, but we will pay you back for those subsidies. So it's not like it's this massive giveaway to insurers. Sure, the insurers sure. Are- no, and I, I, I think that's that's right. I mean, I, I should say that, um, yeah, they're really just, it's almost a Fifth Amendment kind of question, isn't it? I mean, the, the government compelled them uh, to essentially uh, add on extra costs. Uh, and they're just seeking uh, that they be uh, compensated for those costs. Exactly, because that they obviously use that in determining the rates they would set and that sort of thing. You know, um, and speaking of rates, I, it's really interesting what some of the states are doing to sort of work around President Trump cutting off these cutting off these payments and the and the possibility that maybe there won't be any legislation. And I'm not maybe as optimistic about it as you are actually. So. To, to kind of explain this, you have to understand there are two types of credits in Obamacare. There are the tax credits based on income level, and those are pegged to the cost of the Obamacare silver plan. That's like the, the third highest one. You have gold and platinum there. And then there are also the cost sharing subsidies, and that's what President Trump recently stopped. Now, the tax credits are still in effect. And what almost all the states have done, I think 40 plus states through their state insurance regulators is they have allowed insurers to jack up the price of their silver plans. So the resulting increases in tax credits will essentially offset the losses from the Trump administration ending the subsidy payments. And because the amount consumers pay can only go up to a certain percentage of their income, again, it's based on this silver plan, that means that consumers won't actually pay more. It's just a way to get more money from the government to make up for the loss of the cost-sharing money. And that's all being done through the state insurance regulators in, like I said, the vast majority of the states, which is a really sort of clever workaround, I think, for this. I, I think so too. And, uh, I, I, uh, applaud the states and their ingenuity, um, uh, for doing that. So, but of course the, that, that, the first thing that occurred to me is, wow, that's really clever. But the second thing that occurred to me is, isn't it sad that we have a system that is set up like this where you have to do these weird little kludges and, and things like that, you know, this clearly is not how it should be working in a, in a more ideal world. And, and well, you know, yes, yes and no. And I, I would make, this is sort of more like a, a meta conservative, uh, Republican, small R Republican, um, uh, argument that, you know, for so long we we've set up this this system where so much state and local funding comes through the federal government, um, 
which is is a bizarre sort of sort of situation. I mean, you you pay your taxes to the federal government, then they sort of divvy it up and send it back to states and localities. Uh, the results are the states and localities can sort of get away uh, with uh, with lower taxes and providing more services, uh, and uh, uh, then you can complain about your federal taxes. Um, the the downside to this is it sort of makes client states out of these state and local governments, um, which I, I don't think is 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 something that's particularly healthy. Uh, and and you know some of the tax reform proposals that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, for example, the um, the state and local tax um, uh, write off uh, would sort of alter that. Would have to make uh, states and localities be maybe a little more a little more honest. Um, but, but that's just sort of the bigger meta view but i think that's that's how we're we're in this this weird situation is that uh the money sort of has this weird you know goes to washington then comes back and right goes back and forth a couple times in some cases yeah it can it can lead to some bizarre sort of <laughs> bizarre sort of uh workarounds and things like that for sure um you know before we get to our next story we'd like to thank our first sponsor for today and that's blue bottle coffee you know i I love coffee. Um, you know, just as an experiment a while back, I tried tea. I even tried a while back herbal tea and even water. I mean, that's pretty radical to start off my day. But I, you know, I keep on, yeah, I don't know what I'm thinking about, especially herbal tea. But anyway, I keep on coming back to coffee. And, you know, it's not just any coffee. I, you know, my mom drinks this pre-ground stuff that comes in big, I don't know, canisters. I can't, I can't drink that stuff. And, you know, honestly, I don't care much for Starbucks either. I just taste kind of, I don't know, just sad to me, I guess, and burnt. And I, I, I just basically, I can't settle for anything less than what I think is the highest quality coffee because I at least can really taste the difference. And so when I say that blue bottle coffee is really great coffee, I say it as somebody with incredibly high coffee standards, you know, uh, it's roasted just days before it gets to you, which is really important because that means that it's a peak of freshness. And, and that's a, that's a huge thing. And Jay, I know you've tried blue bottle coffee too, right? I do. I like, I like it a lot. And, and, you know, to, to me, it's something that, um, blue bottle coffee, you really get the flavors of the coffee. And I, and again, I not, don't mean that in terms of it's like flavored coffee, like, but, but there's, there's, there are hints and there are, uh, it's, it's a, it's a different experience. And I think sometimes, yeah, other coffees, you just get this overwhelming, um, as you said, almost burnt kind of taste, but, but, uh, there's a lot of subtleties that come out in the, uh, the, the, uh, this, that I, I think if you're a real coffee lover, you'll appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, they, and they have something for everyone. It, you know, you might like dark roast, you might like light roast, high acidity, low acidity, whatever they have you covered basically. And you know, another big plus for me, it has to do with sustainability, Blue Bottle works directly with farmers all over the world to source the most delicious and sustainable coffee they can find. Big deal for me. And right now, Blue Bottle has a great deal for Politics Guys listeners. Sign up for a free trial of fresh, delicious, delicious, I can say that word, Blue Bottle Coffee at bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG. I mean, what do you have to lose? It's a free trial. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG. Bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG. All right, moving on to our next story. You know, late this week, the Senate passed a budget resolution for fiscal year 2018, you know, and, and on the surface, that seems extremely weird because fiscal year 2018 began weeks ago at the beginning of October. Now, here's the deal. In theory, both chambers are supposed to pass yearly budget resolutions really sometime around April. Uh, and these resolutions are designed to set out a basic blueprint and give instructions to the committees that write the actual legislation that needs to be signed by the president and then becomes the budget for the next fiscal year. But in, and we should we should highlight that the the budget resolutions aren't the actual appropriations. Exactly. They're the blueprint for the actual appropriations. Exactly. They're later. not the law. Right. Absolutely. And so but but in reality, what's happened here is that the budget resolution has become nearly meaningless with one exception. And that one exception is that Senate budget resolutions can include instructions to committees that direct them to take action that will raise or lower the deficit. Though if the instruction is to raise it, it can't extend longer than a decade under the so-called Byrd rule, which is named for longtime West Virginia Senator Robert Byrd. Now, the reason yeah, this matters, what's that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, thought you were, I was wondering if you were going to mention that. Um, well, uh, it never gets mentioned. Uh, you know, that's but. true. <laughs> but anyway, the, the reason this matters is that these budget resolution instructions can't be filibustered in the Senate 
meaning that instead of 60 votes, the majority party needs only 51 or 50 votes if they have a vice president who can vote to break ties on their side. Um, I should also mention that another important wrinkle here is that the budget resolution itself can't be filibustered, though the minority party is allowed to offer a number of amendments to it, which they always do. And it's kind of political theater. They call it the Votorama. And you know the, the minority uses this essentially as a way to make the majority party vote against things that will look bad in campaign commercials, essentially. So that's kind of that's kind of how the situation has has played out. And this all played out on Thursday. The Senate voted 51 to 49 to approve the 2018 budget resolution with only one Republican opposing it. That's uh, Kentucky's Rand Paul. And he believed that essentially we have unsustainable federal funds fund spending. And so he just was four square against this. Um, now, the key line in this almost entirely pointless 93-page document. In fact, a number of the Republican senators and said, you know, this is the pointless thing, except for this one thing. An instruction to two congressional committees that deal with tax-related matters to come up with changes that will increase the deficit, that's right, increase it, by not more than $1.5 trillion over a decade. So, Jay, I'm betting you know why this particular instruction is so crucial, right? Right. It's it's crucial because what it does is it ties to the uh, tax reform plan that passed the House. Exactly. Uh, and it would enable this to go back to the House and let the House pass uh, the Senate, uh, the, the Senate uh, changed version, um, which means that uh, the country would get tax reform uh, and it could be had uh, by a simple majority uh, with the Senate. Exactly. So the whole exercise, which, no. is, which is as, as, as Joe, as Joe Biden once said, uh, in regard to other legislation, uh, is a big effing deal. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and but you know, and you think about how how crazy this is, right? This this process, which was set up, this budget resolution process, which was set up in the mid seventies, was designed totally not for policy. It was not supposed to be about policy, but really since the early 90s, that's what it has become, a way for slim majorities in the Senate to pass things without having to deal with the, the filibuster, basically, you know, and this is no way to legislate. I, I don't think I, I would actually rather send, I would rather see the Senate just do away with the filibuster altogether, because I think that would actually lead to better legislative outcomes, because under these budget resolutions, there are certain things that can't go in and can go in. Uh, you have that 10-year timeline where things can't increase, the, can't increase the deficit after 10 years. And so it really does not make for great legislation. That's one of the reasons why certain aspects of Obamacare are problematic, because once they lost their 60th senator, when Ted Kennedy died and Scott Brown got that seat, they had to right. pass some they changes. They had to do it by reconciliation. Exactly. And that left them with a lot less. And so this is a bad way to make laws. And, and I would, because this is not going away, I think a far better approach would just be to just blow up the filibuster and say, you know, we're not going to do this kind of workaround system. If we're going to govern by just bare majority in the Senate, fine, let's do that. But let's not hamstring the process. At least that's my take. What, what do you think? Well, I think, I think that's a, there's a, that's a certain uh, honesty in that approach. Um, and I, I wouldn't, I, I think a lot of conservatives would, would uh, come to that same conclusion. And I think maybe we'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, but, uh, you know, and I think the other thing we should we should point out is, is all of these things that we're talking about, the filibuster and the reconciliation rule and all this, none of it is has anything to do with the Constitution. Uh, these are all internal rules created by Congress um, so they can they can unmake them as as they see fit. Um, and there's there's you know, I, I think there there's something to be said for making the process uh, less uh, Byzantine. Um, you know, in terms of having all these sort of sort of game playing and so forth. Um, but this is sort of the, you know, the patchwork kind of system we've we've arrived at. And maybe it, it might be good at some point to have some sort of, you know, commission a, a bipartisan bicameral uh, commission on um, uh, legislative rules and, you know, look through and, and, and say, do you do we rewrite the uh, House and Senate rules? Um, now, to some extent, uh, this is typically done by each house every time there's a takeover. They, you know, they take a look and there's tweaks and so forth. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's time for that. Uh, maybe not. But it, you know, it's also 
impossible to to erase um, you know people seeking partisan advantage uh, from that process. And and yeah, I don't know. Nor nor should you. I mean, I, I think you ought to you deal with it as it uh, as it is. And look, this is a political process. Um, so I don't know. I I I think it. We could see the end of the the filibuster. Um, in the next, uh, next couple of years, depending on what happens. But, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of been chipped away, uh, bit by bit. Um, so we'll see. Well, you, let me ask you about our related issue to this. You mentioned these internal processes and that they're oftentimes sort of Byzantine. There's another uh, process that sort of has come up and that's the, that's this, uh, tradition, I guess you call it the Senate traditional, what are called blue slips for federal judges and blue slips. Yeah. yeah that, I, that I, I hit want, the news a week or two. Ago. Yeah. I wanted yeah. to get your take on this because um, it's been in the news and let me just, uh, uh, really quickly, Mitch McConnell, who's of course the Senate majority leader is in favor of doing away with blue slips and to understand what that means, Jay, I, you're the, you're the one with well, our, we should explain what a blue slip exactly. is so that, so why, why don't you go ahead and explain it to everyone? It's different than a, a blue dress. Um, <laughs> no, uh, a, a blue slip is is a traditional uh, manner in which, uh, if there's an appointment from a certain state, um, the senators from that state would have the the um, opportunity to submit what is what was called a blue slip because it was a blue piece of paper um, that was would essentially um, blackball that nominee. Uh, the the intent was originally. Uh, to to sort of protect, uh, I guess, the nation um, from from uh, say a a uh, uh, you've got an appointee coming from a certain state and maybe the senator in that state uh, you know knows a little bit more about that appointee than say the uh, the president or the the appointing body and it can sort of uh, say oh ho, hold on here. Uh, I think you need to take another look at this person. And, and when I say knew something about, I mean, in terms of, of ethical problems, uh, issues like that, uh, it, it's since, you know, then since the, I would say probably late eighties, early nineties though, has become more of a, a, a partisan political piece to, to block, uh, nominees. Um, and, uh, that's, that's sort of what has, uh, uh, coming up here is is uh, Senate Democrats seeking to to blue slip to not to block uh, Trump uh, judicial nominees. Yeah, and I, I actually, uh, you know, this certainly I'm not crazy about hardly any of Donald Trump's judicial nominees. It comes as no surprise, but I actually would I agree with Senator McConnell here and 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 the president who also believes in doing away with this because I, again I think that that other things being equal, uh, the president deserves to, unless there are some, you know, ethical or other issues, the president deserves to, ha- to have his people approved unless there's a reason that they're unqualified or something. And, you know, that works, that works out really well for me when someone in my party is president, but it, you know, not so much when other parties, but I, I think it's, I think the, I think the underlying idea that the president, you know, that the Senate has a, a advised and consent on this, but that doesn't mean, well, I don't like your politics. So I'm not going to prove it means that, you know, you might not be qualified. At least that's my take on advising what the advice and consent of the Senate means. And I think, you know, I would guess you probably agree with that. Yeah, I, w- I would. Yeah, I do agree with that. And, and the blue slips are sort of uh, of a piece with with what was sort of a, a bygone era. Um, if, if you think about it, where there was this sense that. Uh, um, again, the it, it, this was, you know, there there was a time and I don't want to overstate this because I, I, I'm not one of these people who looks back and say, Oh man, the good old days, nothing was partisan. Then everybody got along because that wasn't the case. But, but for, for these, these uh, lower court nominations, uh, there was a time uh, I think where it was like, look, is this guy qualified? Yeah. Or this woman qualified, um, uh, you know, and, and the, the sense wasn't, uh, what's their politics, what's their, um, you know they're not being grilled on on uh, whether they're a true Catholic or not, which happened in a Senate Judiciary hearing uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it, it was it was a is this someone uh, who has the temperament, demeanor, um, <clears throat> ethical uh, compass to to serve in that that position? And it was sort of a a gentleman's world sort of thing uh, where it's like, well, if this guy says he's probably not okay, well, then maybe he's not. And it also arose in a a, a period. And you're talking about, you know, going back quite a while with blue slips, uh, where there wasn't a news media that was 24 seven, um, investigating, uh, for lack of a better word, every 
every nominee. Um, uh, so, so the, I mean, this information wasn't readily available, <clears throat> and you sort of look uh, to someone in that state, and you would say, "Hey, is is this person okay or not okay?" Uh, and and the 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 idea was that blue slips would be used rarely, and only in that case of there were the, "Hey, this is really not okay." Um, well, it's it's, uh, it's just, just because the the rest of the process was going to be fairly. Uh, you know, rubber, rubber stampy. Yeah. I, I mean, it's the same thing with the filibuster. You know, I think these are very, that's why I wanted to bring this up because they seem to be, you know, two things that made sense when they were in a, in a different Senate, in a different environment, when they were used rarely and judiciously, but we just don't see that anymore. So, all right, well, let's uh, move on. You know, one of the first things that Donald Trump did after he took office was to put in place a temporary travel ban that targeted six predominantly Muslim countries. And that was a ban that was blocked by multiple federal judges. Then the Trump team went back to the drawing board, came up with a revised temporary travel ban, which was again blocked by multiple federal judges. Now, most recently, the administration came back with a permanent travel ban targeting mostly Muslim countries, but throwing in North Korea and some citizens in Venezuela. Well, this week, travel ban 3.0 met the same fate, blocked by multiple federal judges. In this case, is district court judges in Hawaii and Maryland, both of whom blocked the previous ban. So on this, Jay, I guess I've well, got... You're, you're, go you're, you're leaving out a step. Uh, okay, go ahead. And that is that it, it did go to the Supreme Court um, uh, on uh, on the, the injunction question, um, meaning can this, this law be blocked right now immediately? And the Supreme Court said, uh, no, it cannot, uh, with the exception um, of, of uh, the certain uh, people who had uh, legitimate relationships with others in the United States. And then that went back to the lower courts to, to get kicked around and then back up. Um, uh, and, and, and then importantly, and I just want to kind of crow about this because, uh, I didn't mention it last week. Um, but as I predicted, uh, as for the second, the arguments that were scheduled on the second travel ban, uh, the Supreme court has, uh, kicked it and dismissed the case as moot. Um, uh, so that, uh, because now we have the permanent I one like nine. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm so, right. Right. So now we have a new one and, and, um, but, uh, you know, my sense is that the arguments that are being made um, by by the I don't say arguments, the decisions of the uh, district court judges are are very much of a piece and pretty much the same uh, uh, rationale that they used in uh, trying to strike down the other uh, travel bans. In that, uh, they look to what uh, uh, President Trump said uh, during the campaign, and they say this must be a Muslim ban, uh, and then there therefore. Uh, is a an attempt to impose a religious test on uh, entering and and so forth. But um, yeah, and you know, I go ahead. I want to I want to get your thoughts on this because I've 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 sort of talked at length that I I just don't think the Supreme Court's going to go there, and I still don't think they're going to go there. Yeah, I'm 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 conflicted on this. Uh, I I read oh so in in the in the uh, Hawaii judge, and I, I I do not recall his his name. I think Judge Watson, I believe. Um, he wrote in part that the administration had failed to show a clear link between a person's nationality and the threat he or she posed. And I thought about that, and, and, and that to me seems like a reasonable point. And the second thing he points out is that, um, you know, uh, people who might pose a danger but aren't in one of these countries could uh, fall outside the scope of the ban. And he wrote, this leads to absurd results that the order is actually simultaneously overbroad and under-inclusive. And I thought, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me too. And so here's why I'm conflicted, Jay. I'm conflicted because I think that both of these judges make very good points, putting the whole religious test thing aside. Okay. Putting all that aside, I think right. that the, you're, you're, we're talking just straight out sort of rational basis sort of review. Exactly. So I think they make a good case, but I have to weigh that against the fact that, you know, in these instances, I, I have a strong belief that when we're talking about national security stuff uh, and we're not talking about U.S. citizens, that the benefit of the doubt has to strongly go to the president of the United States, whoever that happens to be. I, and so 
I, th- I think the judges make a good case, but I don't think it's quite good enough. And I, I, I hate the travel ban as a matter of policy. I agree with the judges why, that it's bad policy, but I can't quite bring myself to say it's unconstitutional. We've talked about this again and again and again. That there are plenty it's, of- It's the Scalia stamp that he wish he had that's stupid but constitutional. Ex- exactly. And I think this just passes under there. And so I know I'll probably get some uh, get some uh, blowback from some people who say, I can't believe you're siding with Trump. And I'm not siding with Trump here. I'm sort of trying to side with what I think is- you're siding with the Constitution. Exactly. I'm siding with the Constitution. Be of there. Wrapping myself in the flag as we speak. But but no, I mean, and I think that's a really important, uh, an important distinction to make. So while I agree with the reasoning well, of these- I'll, I'll, I'll sort of, I mean, I, I got your back on this a little bit because I, I want to, you know, the, to me, I, I think it's a little bit, you know, the, the, the district judges who've made these decisions and um, to some extent, they, they kind of get themselves hemmed in a little bit. And they didn't have, in fairness to them also, uh, a whole lot of guidance from the Supreme Court um, in that the Supreme Court's uh, 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 striking down the the injunction was was sort of summary uh, and didn't give give a whole lot of reason. <clears throat> but it did cite to that that great deference uh, type type uh, uh, type reasoning that you're talking about. And I think. You know, when, when you look at this, first of all, in making uh, rules, uh, the executive branch is always afforded significant deference. That's sort of the starting point. Um, it's even a little bit more deferential than when you get into national security. Uh, and, and I think that's that's what this is going to come down to. And I think the, the courts really ought not to. And I think the Supreme Court's going to, this is why they're going to uh, uh, uphold uh, what President Trump has done. Do not want to be in the business of um, of policy making and national security. And again, you can make the argument certainly that the uh, the Trump ban is a dumb idea, that it's unnecessary. Um, to say it has no rational relationship whatsoever um, to the ends that he's trying to accomplish, though so I, I I don't think uh, I don't think he can get there. Yeah, I think I think they made the administration made uh, enough of a case. That this was based on a you know a, a thorough review. No, I don't. Like I said, I don't buy the logic. I wouldn't have done the same thing in that position. But right. I think. And, it's- and again, the the in the third iteration of this, second and third, uh, the administration went back and and did what it should have done uh, in the first one, and sort of you know made some some findings of fact and and supported this with with here's our reasons for doing so. Yeah, and you know it, we should step back even one more step. And this is something that even though, you know, ideologically we disagree on a lot, we, we both have a, a certain discomfort with, uh, uh, with the courts making these decisions because we tend to believe in actually the idea of democracy where, you know, the, the democratically elected branches should have a little more say than the, uh, than, than the undemocratic branch. And, and, you know, as a general principle, you and I both agree on that. No, the only, the only, I would say the, 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 the weakness that I would see if I were arguing against the Trump travel ban from a, from a legal perspective is that this is different in that it is a permanent ban rather than a temporary ban. Uh, and, and the, the argument would go something that this is a, uh, permanent change in immigration policy and therefore is something that ought to go through Congress rather than the, the, the presidency or through the executive branch. But, uh, that, I, I don't know how far you get on on uh, on that argument because I think the the again the deference to deal with national security matters still is going to is going to uh, trump that. Yeah, I, I would expect that uh, like like you that the Supreme Court is going to uh, eventually uphold this. I would expect it to be a five four decision, and so we'll we'll see. But I think I think we're we're going to be proven right on this one. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it will be it will be more than a five four decision. Wow. I I will say it'll be a perhaps a, 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 a seven two. Uh, going to go seven two. I'll, I'll, I'll say it's going to be six three. All right. Well, we'll see. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, you know, this week Democratic senators Amy Klobuchar, Mark Warner, and Republican John McCain introduced something called the Honest Ads Act. And this was in response to concerns over Russian-sponsored ads on social media that were intended to influence the outcome of the 2016 elections. Everyone's aware of that. Now, this measure 
Well, we, we'll, we'll get into that. No, they, yeah. well, okay, but sure. Okay. Hold on one minute. Um, we'll see. Anyway, this was, this would target all digital platforms with an average of at least 50 million visitors per month. So you and I, the politics guys, just under, just under the wire there. Um, um, it was just get under the radar. Just barely. Yeah. Um, but it would require the companies to maintain a public file of all electioneering communications that were purchased by a person or group that spends more than $500 total on ads on that platform, that that file would have a digital copy of the ad, a description of the audience the advertisement targets, the number of views generated, the dates and times of publication, the rates charged, and the contact information of the purchaser. Now, it would also require online platforms to make all reasonable efforts to ensure that foreign individuals and foreign entities aren't purchasing political advertisements in order to influence the American electorate, which is already illegal. Um, and bipartisan companion legislation to this was also introduced in the House. Now, I think it's important to note that back in 2006, the Federal Elections Commission, the FEC, decided to exempt online platforms from the same campaign ad reporting laws that all other media are held to in the belief that the Internet should be maintained as this innovative and open forum for political discourse. Though, you know, that was, of course, back before smartphones, the explosion of social media, fake news, and well-documented efforts by a hostile foreign government to use social media advertising to spread fake news and influence U.S. elections. So you can kind of see where I'm headed on this. But, but Jay, I wonder, I wonder what you think. You know, do you see this as a reasonable legislative response to a very different technological environment or... Do you see it as a case of overreach by two liberals and one conservative who's been, I would say, the biggest Republican supporter? Conservative? Well, okay. <laughs> two, the, two liberals right. and well, John one McCain, Republican yeah. who's been unquestionably the biggest Republican supporter of limits on paid political speech in the, at least the last several decades. I mean, you know, that 2002 law, that was the McCain-Feingold Act, right? So what do you think? Well, you know, here's... I, I'm coming at this a couple different ways. Um, the sense I get is this Congress is sort of scrambling like the, Oh, we've got to do something. Uh, so they will do something. Um, will it actually make any difference with any of this? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, the, I think it'll be an added burden on these uh, tech companies. Um, uh, can they shoulder the burden? Probably. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I guess the best way to, to phrase my is, is ambivalent. Um, uh, on the one hand, I, I, I'm always a little concerned to see any sort of movement to curtail um, uh, political speech. Um, that said, I mean, does this really do that? Well, not a lot. Uh, it, it really just sort of imposes some of the, the basic um, uh, attribution rules that were already in place on, on other, you know, types of media. Um, so is it, is this, you know, am I saying is this is a threat to the First Amendment? No, I don't think it is. Uh, is it the uh, camel's nose under the tent? Well, you know, you, you never can tell. Um, but but the more important piece of this to me is it, it's just one of these things that strikes me as sort of pointless. Um, if you look at the Russian ads, and, and again, now we're finding out what, what they were, um, uh, Mike, none of these ads were uh, direct campaigning, electioneering, that would have fallen under the FEC regulations. <clears throat> so what I'm saying is, is none of these are were ads that said vote for Donald Trump, uh, vote against Hillary Clinton. Uh, rather, they were uh, uh, just trying to, to like for back, lack of a better word, stir up trouble. Uh, the other thing that's significant about the the Russian Facebook ads, 50% of them ran after the election. Um, so if, if you're, if you were doing ad buys for an election and, and 50% of them, the way to do it. <laughs> I'd, I'd say you're, you're not doing a very good job. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my, my point is these ads wouldn't even, the, what the Russians did wouldn't be covered, uh, by what this bill proposes. Um, now would it, would it prevent some other, uh, uh direct meddling by other groups? Maybe, um, are there some easy workarounds that, that way? Uh, yes, I think there are. So, um, 
I, I, again, I guess my, my best response, and this isn't, I suppose, great for a, a, you know, show we're supposed to discuss controversial stuff is, is ambivalent is meh. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, in a way I should, I would say I'm strong supportive of half of it. Um, and, and I think that, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Well, let me explain. So I really like, and I'm, the, I'm half support, I'm half supportive, but not strongly. Exactly. So, you know, I don't know exactly how, uh, how we agree on that, but, but I like the second part, that idea of all reasonable efforts must be made by these companies to ensure that foreign individuals and entities aren't purchasing ads. I think that's pretty important. You know, they shouldn't be in the first place. I, you know, I wonder though how difficult or how easy it would be for foreign governments to subvert this by using third parties in the U.S. That kind of thing. Um, it would be really, 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 really easy. This is what I'm thinking. You know, <laughs> but just you know, I, I don't necessarily object to the first part. All of those that public thing with all of the, all of that all of that information that would be required. But I don't know that it would do much good, except in after the fact analyses. I guess it'd give us more data to work with because. What, what I think one thing we've learned is that transparency isn't nearly the panacea that, that proponents make it out to be. You know, we already have these massive databases on political spending and so forth, and, and they really haven't, to my mind, changed much of anything. And so I think this would be not very useful, and it certainly would impose a burden on these companies. Yeah, they could they could afford it, certainly, but what would be the what would be the good of it? I, I don't know that there would be much good. And, you know, in the end, when I think about these things, I feel like this is kind of the price we pay for living in an open society. Uh, and, and, you know, when that open society starts to lose the capacity to critically and rationally analyze political claims, then we're in big trouble. And I don't think that's trouble that can be solved by legislating it away. You know, I mean, the problem isn't that the Russians are buying ads. The problem is that people can't separate fake news from real news and, and can't investigate claims. To me, that's the bigger problem. That's not a legislative problem. That's an educational problem. Wow. I couldn't have said it better myself. There you go. So that, I thought you was impressive. I thought you'd agree with that. So, you know, I, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere. I, there's obviously a lot of concern about the Russians. Uh, making attempts to influence our elections, but I, I, I just, I just don't know if it's going to go anywhere. And even if it does, I don't think it's going to be very helpful at all. Yeah, no, I think we're, I think we're all on the same page there. And, and to me, it, it's, it's more just Congress feels like it needs to stand up and say, uh, we're doing something um, to, to, I mean, once again, I, I, I keep coming back to, and maybe, you know, all the total numbers aren't in yet, but the, that the Russians and I, I took some heat on this for uh, Facebook, but I will I will boldly go out there again and say, uh, one hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars in uh, in ad revenue and that's or in uh, ad buys and that, you know that that doesn't that doesn't pay for your coffee in one state, you know for for a uh, to get you on the ballot in a in a presidential election. So, um. Uh, you know, look, should we should we do stuff to uh, enforce the prohibitions on on foreign meddling? Uh, sure. Uh, is this impose a, a too high a, co a burden on these uh, tech companies to to do that? Maybe it does. So. All right. Well, it is time for what we're reading when we step back from a crazy pace in the news cycle and talk about some, you know, longer, more in-depth things that we're reading or sometimes listening to or watching. And, you know, this week there was a, a big investigative piece came out that the Washington Post did in uh, uh, along with, I believe it was 60 Minutes on the opioid epidemic and this law that was passed through a, a unanimous consent in both the House and the Senate that made it easier or made it harder for the DEA to stop suspicious uh, drug shipments of, of opioids. It was a really fascinating read. I imagine a lot of listeners have read it. If you haven't, I would encourage you to because regardless of what you think about the law, the information that they present about this amazing revolving door between the DEA and then lobbyists who go to work to try to lobby the DEA. I mean, this is a pretty common thing in government, but some of the statistics that they present are really, I think I would be eye-opening to a lot of people. I thought it was a really interesting article and uh, in fact did lead to uh, President Trump's nominee 
to uh, run the DEA actually withdrawing because he was one of the people who is behind this legislation. And so a really interesting read, and I would recommend it. And of course, we'll have that article in the show notes. So okay. uh, uh, my pick. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so Jay, what's your pick? And you were just getting ready to tell me. Oh, OK. Oh, um, well, well, two things. In it, and one, I don't want to say it's it's my pick yet because I'm 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 only like about a third of the way through it. Uh, but I am finally uh, getting around to reading Hillbilly Elegy uh, by by uh, J.D. Vance. And, and it's it's really uh, so far I recommend it. It's it's not it's not political uh, in the sense of, of specific policy things, but it's it's sort of an on the ground look of, of what's happening, uh, what has happened uh, to the, the white working class um, uh, in America. And it's 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 good because it, it's also sort of a uh, uh, I don't want to say it, it glorifies or glamorizes or, and it doesn't, it doesn't sort of assign away blame and say, well, it's all just uh, globalization or it's all the Chinese or it's, it's, it's these policies. It, it also looks at personal choices that, that a lot of uh, people make and, and don't make. But um, the, the companion thing to that, that, that I thought was interesting that I, I will recommend and you absolutely, people should read is uh, Kevin Williamson has a piece in national review and, and every once in a while, Kevin Williamson just just fires off these big um, pieces that, that deal a lot with with class issues. Uh, and uh, it, it's he had he had one a, a year or so ago that, that raised a lot of eyebrows, both on the right and the left, um, where he, he sort of encouraged to listen. If you're if you're in one of these uh, these towns, you know, it's sort of, hey, look, drop drop the opioids and and uh, move and get a job i mean i'm i'm paraphrasing no i remember that uh, one but yeah. it was sort of a very much a, a tough love kind of kind of message uh for for uh, uh you know white working class or the, the underclass the trump trump voters um and this is sort of along those those same lines and and he takes the the concept of um you know in in the the black community there is is what's referred to as acting white um, and, uh, president Obama even talked about this, that, you know, a black child with a book, uh, is accused of, of acting white. Uh, and the idea that, you know, somehow acting white is, uh, um, you know, again, again, leaning towards, uh, education and, 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 uh, bourgeois values and so forth. And Kevin Williamson takes that and says, listen, the problem we've got now is that, um, uh, it's almost like the, the the idea of this the acting white means means something different. Uh, he sort of said that you know that that I don't know. Again, I'm I'm not phrasing I'm not phrasing this well because I I don't want to misstate uh, what he's saying. But uh, it, it's very much the the piece that these values that once had been associated with rural uh, suburban America are now have fallen in, in, in disrepute among, uh, rural suburban Americans. Um, all right. Well, and, you know, uh, I was gonna say the fact that it's interesting you mentioned hillbilly elegy because, uh, I actually read part of that a while ago and it just didn't do much for me. I mean, this was a book, of course, that especially on the left, people were just going nuts about and JD Vance's, he should run for office and all, and, you know, I read it and, and I just felt, it, I, I guess, you know, it was a lot of stuff that I felt like I already knew. And I wondered, is maybe the strong reaction in some parts of the left because they're so out of touch with this part of a marriage? So it didn't, I, I read it, but it didn't really engage me a whole lot because I was like, well, of course, yes, doesn't everyone know this? And I guess not. Uh, but I just recently, so I'm going to give people a bonus recommendation um, because of this. I read a book recently called American Rust. By It's a novel by a guy named Philip Meyer, um, uh, who I, he covers a lot of these same issues, but he does it in a far more compelling way. It's basically the story about two young kids in this uh decaying former steel town in rural Pennsylvania and so forth. And there's the same issues with drugs and the hollowing out of the middle class and crime and so forth. But I found it far more compelling and engaging. It covers a lot of the same ground. And so if like me, you picked up the hillbilly elegy and just thought, eh, you know, American Rust, you might want to check it out because it covers a lot of the same ground and it's really compelling read. And so I'm going to make that a bonus recommendation for today. Okay. And when my, and my last piece about the, um, 
uh, the the Kevin Williamson is is Mike. It, it speaks to that because I think you would you would get it too because we both grew up uh, in in environments where I, I don't want to say there there was a there was also a pressure against uh, uh, education and and doing something better with your life because because that wasn't necessarily the sense, but but there were um, you growing up in Cleveland, me growing up in Youngstown. Uh, a sense of uh, who needs that uh, that fancy uh, college stuff? Why don't you just go get a real job? Um, uh, and and uh, it, what Kevin Williamson addresses is, is kind of that those pressures that exist and and the choices that people make to them. I mean, uh, um, and again, it's it's uh, it is probably going to be some again strong medicine for for a lot of folks. But um, to me, the, what he talks about is is a part of conservatism that is, is hard to to put into public policy because it's not really empirical looking at choices people make and, 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 and attitudes that they have that are very difficult, if not impossible to measure and, and how to incentivize changes to that, which is also, again, difficult, if not impossible to measure. Yeah, that that um, becomes extraordinarily tricky. You we'll, we'll put the, we'll put the link up and, and you make up your own mind. Absolutely. All right. Well, that does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We do hope you like what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsor. That's Blue Bottle Coffee, where you can sign up for a free trial of fresh, delicious Blue Bottle Coffee at bluebottlecoffee.com slash TPG. And you know, listener support's a huge help to us. And if you want to help us out, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. If you want to support the show without spending anything it would be great if you could share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on facebook and twitter's also leaving reviews and ratings on itunes does help us out a lot and if you want to get in touch with us with a question comment correction whatever you can you can email us at mail politicsguys.com or our facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week that's facebook.com slash politics guys page we're also on twitter at politics guys Executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.